everybody, friends watching at home and people in the courtyard. We have a little time today, so I want to start by just leading you through a little exercise because uh, what I'm going to talk to you today is about the subject of joy, but we're going to get there in a way that we often don't think of it. But I want to do a little exercise that has I've learned that's helpful in connecting to joy. So I want to just invite you to close your eyes and go to the quiet place of prayer wherever you're at. And here's what I want you to think about as we start. I want you to think about a time in your life when God felt close. Could have been his presence through a friend, time of prayer, worship, his provision. But a time in your life when God felt close. Now be aware of your gratitude for that time. Father, thank you as we quiet ourselves and we reflect, even if it's just aware of your presence as we walk around your creation and we felt close, we're grateful. Thank you, Father, that gratitude connects us to your presence that's here right now and it lets us feel joy. So I bless my friends with the joy, but the joy that comes from you and being with you. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for doing that. You know what? Uh, it's a practice that we've taught here a few different times, and we're going to do some prayer training this summer around it. But did you know that gratitude actually activates the part of your brain that allows you to experience joy? And I think it's something our culture needs today because there's so little joy going around. But I think it's because we're constantly wanting more, needing more, aware of the things that we don't have or our problems. And so um, just the simple act of being thankful, being remembering, speaking that to other people, what you're grateful for, how you're grateful for them, it activates joy in our brain. And then what that does, it allows us to connect to God's presence that's always with us. It makes us aware of him. And so it's not magic. It's actually neuroscience that's explaining the way prayer works. And so um, I can always tell you more about that. Anyway, I want to get into the message today, and we're going to talk about joy, but we're going to talk about joy getting there through an interesting path, a combination of two things, God's favor and our generosity. Those two things, one of the, uh, the products of those two things coming together and that movement is incredible joy. And I want to start by telling you just a little bit about our family. You know, this is the time of year, May, where a bunch of young people in our church graduate. 
So our University of Colorado students and other college students that are part of our church, many of them are graduating in the next week or so. And it's kind of a bittersweet time. We're excited for them, but we say goodbye. And uh, many of them leave and they go back to different parts of the country or different parts of Denver and, and we don't get to see them again. And, and we have many high school students getting ready to graduate at the end of this month. And it's hitting closer to home this year for Elise and I because many of our close friends are graduating their oldest so our group of friends is actually now going through this process where our oldest kids are getting ready to graduate. And it's very close to us because our oldest son, Cole, is a junior, and we're going to be in their shoes this time next year. And so we're thinking about college. And one of the things that I think about often for my boys as these things come up is, have I given them the things that they need? I think every parent thinks of this, right? And when you answer that question, you say, sort of, All right? We did our best. We make mistakes. The great thing about God is he's able to fill in the gaps, all the mistakes that parents make. And um, when I thought about my boys over the years, I thought, what are the things that I want to give them? Well, you know, I wanted to give them things that would help them succeed. And so in our home, we've always celebrated hard work over talent. And um, that's a virtue. It's a choice. And so that's one of those things that we lifted up in our family. Um, Character is one of those things. But above all, we want our boys to be godly. We want them to know what it means to love God, to serve God, to obey God, to be someone that others can count on, to be a blessing in this world. And when it comes to my boys, you know, I I think very highly of them. I think they're going to do really well in life. I want them to learn to be generous because I know from my own experience that generosity leads to joy. And so as I was thinking about it this week, if I could choose one thing for my boys, what would it be? I want to give them the path to joy. That's what I want for them. Even more than success, Even more than health, I want my boys to understand what it is that leads you to joy. And so um, I think generosity is one of those things. So in our family, early on, we would do these things at different times of the year where we're trying to teach our boys about how to to be generous with the birthday money they were getting or the, the things that they were earning. And so at Christmas, Cornerstone does a thing called Advent giving. Many of you know this, where we challenge one another to spend less on ourselves so we can give more away. And we, and we give our, our, our money to uh, movements in Africa. They're helping kids go to school or we've built schools there. Or this week, I visited Mexico City, and we visited a couple organizations, Reintegra and El Pozo de Vida, great organizations that are helping girls who've been rescued from human trafficking. And every Christmas, we say, boys, we're going to spend less on ourselves, and we're going to give to these great things. And from a very early age, my boys' eyes would, would light up with a twinkle, and they say, this is amazing. We get to help people. I love that about them. They want to help. But then I would say, you know, I wanted them to understand that money is not an endless resource, and this is going to require sacrifice. And so I would pull out the magazine, the toy magazine, and I'd start saying, look at all these things that we could buy with that money, and I'd always end up on the Lego page because Legos in our home is the greatest possession. It is the treasure. And uh, I'd say, look at all these Legos we could buy, but we're not going to because we're going to, and they say, no, dad, we need that. Elise called it torture. I called it training. It's probably somewhere in between. But I wanted them to understand the path to joy and that it feels like sacrifice at times. A few years ago, our oldest son, Cole, who was in, at the time was in middle school, we were coming home from the evening service here at Cornerstone, and it was in May. And in May, we usually, not this year, but we usually do a fundraiser called Red Envelope, where we help scholarship kids to go to camp. 
send a lot of kids to middle school and high school camp, and in the lobby there's usually a display with all these envelopes with numbers on them, one to 100. Each one represents an amount that you're scholarshipping a kid to camp. We get in the car, and Cole throws down an envelope that has something around the number 40 on it. And I said, hey, buddy, Mom and I already grabbed some of these this morning. And I could hear the pride in his voice when he said, oh, this one's not for you. This one's for me. Sending another kid to camp. And I chuckled and I looked over at him. And guess what I saw on his face? A great big smile of joy. Joy. And I thought, he's getting it. Last month, we ended a big project here at Cornerstone called Dream Boulder. It was a two-year giving initiative. It was our two most generous years in our history. I wish we had the new building to show for it. It's coming a little long, slower than we expected. But many of you got a letter in the mail from me and just update on, on, on our giving. And uh, so Elise and I got one of those letters, a letter from myself addressed to myself. That's always interesting to get. Uh, but also with the letter addressed to Elise and I were letters to our boys because they were all a part of it. And I sat in my office as I went through the mail, and I smiled with joy. I want to tell you another story today that I think gave God joy, but I know it gave people joy. And it's a movement of God's favor and our generosity. And so if you haven't been with us for a while, we're in the book of Nehemiah, and we're using this book, which is an ancient story of when Israel returns to Jerusalem, and they begin to rebuild the people and the place that once was there. And so uh, before Nehemiah comes, a couple other leaders come, and they rebuild the temple, and they reestablish the temple. Nehemiah is way back in the east, serving in a pagan king's court, and he finds out that the city walls are still in ruins, and that no one's coming back to the city because it's not safe yet. And he weeps, and he mourns, and he asks God to help grant him favor so that he might return to Jerusalem, which he's allowed to do. And in 52 days, Nehemiah, along with all the people, remember this is an important message in Nehemiah, next to each one was someone else. They all had their own section of the wall, and next to them was so-and-so, next to them was another family, next to them was another family. You have blacksmiths, perfume workers, men and women, old and young, all working together. The gifted, the ungifted, at least in building the wall, they're all there working together and they complete this thing. And so what we're doing is we're taking Nehemiah and we're learning, um, just, we're taking, we're drawing from it and using it as a metaphor of what it looks like for right now for our church to rebuild after the last year. And this is a conversation happening in every church in the country, really around the world right now. I spent time in Mexico City this last week and they're having the same conversation. It's like starting all over. So we're using Nehemiah as a metaphor for rebuilding and eventually moving towards this place where we want to end up with renewal, God's revival sweeping through. And so I want to show you that this book is not just a book about leadership and building, but it's a, it's a story, it's a book about God's favor and generosity, three movements. So I want to take you through each of those. So for, we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. After Nehemiah hears about what's taking place in the city and the walls have not yet been put back together, he prays this prayer. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And he's speaking of, of course, the king, who he is the cupbearer to, which means he works very closely with him on a daily basis. 
Nehemiah knows that there is no part for him in this rebuilding project unless God does something amazing and opens up a door for him to be able to go because he has a job. And you could almost say it's not just a job, it's servitude. He's forced to stay in this job and it's literally going to take an act of God. That's why he's praying for God's goodness. He's praying for favor that God might do something amazing. In chapter two, Nehemiah is serving the king and his wife dinner, and they notice that he's downtrodden, he's sad, and they ask him what's taking place. Nehemiah tells him what's happening in Jerusalem, and he asks for permission to leave, and this is what the king says. This is what favor looks like in this moment. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked him, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me So I set a time. So he's released from his job. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter from Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, for the temple, and for the city walls, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, So look, he's giving God credit for the king's generosity. There's layers here. God's favor, human generosity, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letter. And the king also sent me army officers and cavalry with me to protect him. So in this moment, God's favor that he had asked for shows up in a number of different ways. He's given a new job. He's now the governor of Judea. He's given resources for his trip back to to Israel. He's given a safe passage. He's given protection. That's how God's favor looks. And lastly, he's given resources to rebuild the wall. Now notice what's being resourced here is something bigger than himself. It's not just his own ambitions, but it's this thing that God had put on his heart. This would be at least the third time over the course of about 100 years that a Persian king would resource and grant favor to God's people in rebuilding the city. So if you read the book of Ezra, which is a great book to read in parallel with Nehemiah, it happens just a few years before. Ezra goes back, as I mentioned, and builds the temple, not the wall. But in Ezra chapter one, it says, the Lord moved the heart of, the, of Cyrus, king of Persia. God moved the heart of another king. It says later in the book of Ezra that the costs of the temple were covered by the royal treasury. In Ezra chapter 6 verse 14, it says, they finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel. Look, according to the command of God, the favor of God, and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. God's favor, human generosity. Starts right here. Now, actually, happens to start with one family and one household, happens to be a royal household, happens to be the most powerful household in all of the world, but they are sharing their generosity and God's favor is flowing through them. Now, God's favor does a couple things. First of all, God's favor opens a way. So if you've ever experienced God's favor in your life or God did something amazing for you, he probably opened a way you were stuck You couldn't see something. He opened something up. He allowed something to move. God's favor can look differently. It can look like an open door. It can look like an opportunity. It can look like a connection. How many of you have great jobs because because of a connection that took place? God's favor. God's favor on your life. 
And he's using other people to bring it about. He's using your hard work and your talent as well. But all of those things are expressions of God's favor. Uh, A closed door can be God's favor. I mean, there's not a ton of us in the room here right now, but if we were to go around and say, let's all share of a time in our life that we're very grateful that God did not give us what we wanted, a closed door, we would be here all day, right? It would be a much more interesting message than this one. Maybe we'll do that someday. But we all know what that's like. That's God's favor. God's favor also does not promote or bless self-promotion. It's always about something else. There's a couple words that are used for favor in the book of Nehemiah. The first word is the Hebrew word raham, which means to be given pity, mercy, help, compassion, or to be seen with tender love. This is the word that's used when Nehemiah prays for favor. God, give me tender love from the king. May he have pity on me. God, give me favor. Give me, uh, you know, just help the person like me so that I might make this connection. The second Hebrew word is the word yata. And this is the kind of favor that someone shows to someone else. And it means to do something for someone that is good, right, or beautiful. And so, of course, God does this for us, but every one of you in this room has shown favor towards someone else. You've done something good, right, or beautiful for them. It's acting on someone's behalf. And acting out of favor is different than acting out of honor. When you act out of honor, we give something to someone because it's owed to them. It's also different than acting out of obligation. When you act out of obligation, you give to someone because it's part of the deal. It's your duty. It's transactional. But favor is about doing something good, beautiful, or true for someone because they are treasured. You believe in them. You think affectionately about them. I treasure, I favor my wife. I want to make her happy above other people. I chose her because of that. It's pretty simple. You know, we can spiritualize all day why we get married to people, but it's like, well, I favor how they look and how they act and how they treat me, right? I favor who I am with them. Together, Elise and I favor our boys, You know, I'm around lots of young guys. I've coached thousands of young men. I like most of them. Some are harder to like. But I favor my boys. I favor my sons. I can't favor everyone. But this is how God is different. God favors his children. There's not limits to his love or his generosity or what he's able to share It's not limited by numbers of people. God favors his children, and God loves to bless his children, especially when they're saying yes to the things that he's doing, and so he's so pleased here to show favor towards Nehemiah. God likes you. A lot of people don't know that. My father-in-law has this great quote. It says this, God loves you, Well, he loves you because he's God and he has to, but he doesn't really like you. That's how a lot of people think. God loves me because he has to, but he doesn't really like me. But that certainly is not true. God made you. There's never been a day of your life that he's looked away from you. 
There's never been a moment of your life that you haven't belonged to God. God smiles when he thinks of you. You give him great joy. And because of that, God does what a good father does or a good mother does. He tries to allow us to see his presence in our life by bringing blessing and favor and pouring it into our lives. There's lots to be grateful for. And so the king becomes an image of that. Here's the second movement in the story of Nehemiah. So it goes from the king in one family. Now it moves to uh, not just one home, but a few homes. One king to a few dozen families. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 5. Something difficult is happening among the poor here in the story. And this is what it says. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we are on, of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have, we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery or servitude. And here's what's happening. There are three groups. Remember, everyone's working together, but there's three groups who are unable to manage just life. One group consisted of those unable to purchase food. A second group was also suffering due to the famine, could only buy food if they mortgaged their property. And selling your land in Israel was the last resort because it was part of your inheritance. Your mark that God loved you in some ways. And a third group needed to mortgage their property, not just their property, but they actually had to sell their children into servitude to pay the Persian taxes. So there's layers of poverty taking place. Nehemiah hears about this and he acts quickly. And his response is to say to the people, forgive the debt, return the servants, and give back the land. Okay, so forgive the debt, return the inheritance, and return the person to the relationship, or allow the relationship to be restored. I mean, it's prophetic of what Jesus would do someday. So what happens here? Just like it was with the king, they are pictures of the gospel in Jesus. There's a God in heaven that shares everything with us as he sees fit. And there is Jesus who comes that forgives the debt. He returns the promise and he re reconciles relationships. That's what Jesus does. This is a picture of the gospel happening right here in Nehemiah because of God's favor and human generosity. The people say this, chapter 5, verse 12. We will give it back and we will not demand anything for it. Then it goes further. Nehemiah gets very, very generous. Chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine and all kinds of goods. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on the people. He's saying, I'm not going to take the tax, and I'm going to share what I have with those coming in and those that are poor. And then look what he says in verse 19. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. There's the word again, favor. They're joined together. Imagine these different groups, these three groups that are really struggling. Imagine what it was like to go home that day and have your land returned to you. 
full of gratitude, aware of God's favor, but very aware of where it came from. Their daughter comes home. Tears of joy and gratitude because of God's favor and these few families' generosity. And it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does. That's the second movement. Here's the third movement. And this is where the story is amazing, really amazing. So God moves in Israel, and he's not just trying to help them rebuild a temple where worship can happen and a wall where, where, where boundaries are marked. And, you know, in a city, there's identity, there's safety, there's all of these things. But God was trying to rebuild the character of the people. See, they had been victims. They had been scattered. And so it's going to take a big work to bring them together and to help them find their courage again and their virtue again and to work together and to say yes to God's purposes moving forward. All of the things that have happened so far are kind of cleaning up the past. But what happens here, this last movement of God's favor and generosity is about the future. And so you get to Nehemiah chapter 10 and you see that the people begin to make oaths to God together. This is something that's very needed today in our culture. God's people together making promises to him. See, we're very aware of how important it is to make our individual choices to God. But communities that actually do amazing things together, where the presence of Jesus is manifested in the way we love one another, where healing takes place, is when God's people together make the same oaths. So this happens, this is, this is full of life, revival's breaking out, and so they make oaths about their family, and they make oaths about the Sabbath, but then they begin to make oaths about once again becoming faithful stewards of what God was giving them. So chapter 10, verse 35, just one section, the whole last part of chapter 10, you can read it, describes it, this is what they say, all the people, all the people, we will, all, we will also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops, and of every fruit tree is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle and our herds and our flocks to the house of God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first out of the ground, or the first of our ground meal, our grain offerings, the fruit of the trees and the new wine and the olive oil. And we'll bring a tithe. Tithe just simply means 10% or the first tenth of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes and all the towns where the work is happening. So here's what's happening. This is, can be hard to ima- figure all this out. In Israel, they had a way of managing the spiritual life and the social life of the community. And so it was a mix. The tithe was a mix of what we would call today tax and free will giving. Okay, And so anytime a pastor stands up and tries to say the tithe translates from back then to now perfectly, it's not true. This is part of the unique covenant that God had made with Israel. But there were actually three tithes, three first tenths. Okay, So one of the tithes went to the ministry of the temple, cared for the priests and their families. There was another tithe that was done once a year that was used to, uh, for the celebrations, for the feasts, and they would throw a party for the poor every year, the second tithe. The third tithe, which was done every third year, uh, is the equivalent of a national food bank, something to care for the poor, okay? So if you put them in ca- categories, you have one, the, the, the spiritual ministry that's taking place in the community. Two, which I love this about God, the tithes went to celebrations, I love that about him. 
And three, the tithes went to care for the poor. So, you know, biblical scholars debate a little bit of how much Israel was giving at the time, but it's somewhere between 23 and 30% throughout a period of three years. This is what they were giving. This is what the people are returning to. Willingly. Ready to return to this unique mark of who they were as a people that set them apart to make room for God in the world. We use the word holy. Doesn't mean better. It just means different. They're saying yes to this all over again. So notice what happened. One king. A few families. All the families. The first two clean up the past. The third part of the movement moves into the future. It's an amazing, amazing story of God's favor and generosity. So let me connect that to our story here at Cornerstone because we have a lot to celebrate. As I mentioned earlier, we just finished our first, our, our, our most generous two years. Uh, many of you kind of take your practice of, of Christian giving, of faithful financial giving from some of these passages that you read about in Leviticus or Deuteronomy or stories like this. But really we take our, our cues about what we do with our money from Jesus. And it might surprise you to hear a pastor say that Jesus never ever said, said everyone should tithe. He never said that. In fact, if you want to kind of wrestle with what you think about money, I listened to the best podcast, the best thing I've ever listened to about money a few weeks ago. It's a story of two guys who went to Harvard Business School and they began to explore the scriptures about what it sa- Jesus says about money. We posted that. I think it's on our, um, our app and Facebook. We'll put it up there this week. It's worth the listen. But Jesus never ever said you have to tithe. But what Jesus did promote is sacrificial giving. Faithfulness. So, so that's why you see in the early church, you see people sharing what they have, and you see generosity that exceeded even what ancient Israel was doing on their most faithful years. But there wasn't a number, there wasn't a goal. It was God moving in people's hearts, but they understood that faithfulness and sacrifice are absolutely essential to walk in the Jesus way. But Jesus actually spent more of his time giving us warning about money. Because he knew, I'll speak for myself, that I would have a complicated relationship with money. But I think he knew that every person would have a complicated relationship with money. Makes people uncomfortable. Pastors don't even like talking about it because we just know how complicated the subject is. Scares people. Scares us. But Jesus would say things often like, be careful that it doesn't get your heart. Be careful that it doesn't consume you. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Do not store it for yourselves treasures on earth, where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself treasures in heaven. We've all heard that, right? You get to verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now let me tell you something about this passage. The word should not be money. This is so deceiving. This creates some picture that we should be against money or that money is the source of evil. It is not. The word here is mammon. I've shared this before. It's really important for us to know this begins to help clean up and clear up our complicated relationship with money. This is what Jesus is saying. You can't serve me and mammon. Mammon means an overlove, an overconfidence, an overaffection, an overtrust in wealth. 
See the difference? Jesus was getting to that part of us that's complicated that attaches our heart to it. That's why he said, this shows what's in your heart. Jesus knew practically things to get done with generous giving, but he knew that there is no antidote in this world for mammon except for generosity. It is medicine for the soul. And that is why you have an eighth grade boy smile with joy or a dad that smiles with joy when they see it. Because our hearts are free from something that is very powerful. And money is. The reason it has this powerful influence in our life is because it's powerful in the world. It's distilled power. It allows us to control things. You can store money in your account to create the illusion, or at least in a small way, control what your future is going to look like, right? We do that. But constantly as we do that, there's this, this line between what's responsible and what's reckless with our heart. The overtrust, the overlove, the overservice. And so that's why Jesus' words are actually beautiful and so liberating, especially for powerful people like us. There's never been a richer culture. There's never been a culture that's experienced so much freedom because of their wealth than us. So this is what happened here at Cornerstone in the last years. We had our, most two, our two most generous years. It's amazing. Two years ago, I stood up here and I said, hey, we've got this simple goal. It's not profound, but our building is old. The roof is leaking. It's pretty crappy, all right? I mean, this room is beautiful, but the, it's just, we've outgrown it and it's old. So he said, hey, we need to remodel it. We're gonna add on to it. I wish we had all that to show, for, show you right now, but all we can show you right now is some pictures. John Stewart or Steve, you can put some of those pictures up there. Someday, in a land far away, we will enjoy this space. I might be retired by then. <laughs> but we asked you to make a sacrifice and to be faithful to, for two years. And you heard last week, but we, we exceeded our giving goal. It's amazing. During a year with COVID, it's amazing. We had over 400 families and individuals contribute to the project. We nearly doubled the numbers, number of faithful givers giving every month during that time. Nearly doubled. Many new people joined in. Our kids and our students participated. Some of our favorite stories. From the very beginning, we said, hey, you know, we had, we had a number goal just because we had a cost to the building, but our primary goal was 100% participation. And uh, so... Where are we at now? Well, we closed up that season in March. I'm very grateful. I've been looking forward to telling you about it for a while. I'm glad that that project is done, and now we're just waiting for the building to be done and living with kind of the inconvenience. Uh, many of you have asked because you know that costs of the building have gone up because of COVID. Material costs cost more, so we have a bit of a gap. And many of you said, what are we supposed to do now? Here's all I would ask you. It's the same thing I would ask any church at any time that I get to be a part of. Be a part the goal is still 100% participation. We don't need the same level, but God still asks for participation and faithfulness, that each one of us finds our part along the wall and we do our part next to them, next to them, that you're a part of that. 
And so what we're asking our church to do, and Elise and I will go home uh, in the next few weeks and do the same thing, is we will evaluate where we're at right now, which we're asking you to do, and consider what faithfulness looks like in the next year for you. We don't think we need a number amount to close the gap. We think we have, um, we have what it takes over the course of the next year to close that gap and be in a very, very healthy place. And so 100% participation, and we're just asking you to evaluate where you're at and to make your next faithful step. Many of you have joined Cornerstone in the last two years. We'd invite you to be a part of our team. I have no problem standing up here saying we have a vision big enough that it requires all of us to be a part of. Every one of us is absolutely needed in what God wants to do. And again, there's not some number goal What I have in my mind is that we're all together. I can't ever get away from being the coach. So I will pastor this church like a coach. And I know what it's like when everyone's moving in the same way together. I know what it's like when next to them, someone else next to them, and next to them. I know what it's like when God's favor and generosity move through a church as a movement. And I don't want it to stop because we've been blessed with that for the last two years. And so... um, We're gonna close that book here at Cornerstone. Very glad about it. And I wanna celebrate your faithfulness over the last two years. And as we do that, um, I wanna close with a video. We're gonna watch a a video that's a celebration of what's taken place. But as we watch people describe their own journeys, working through the complications of money, experiencing God's favor, sharing what God has given them, being generous, I want you to listen and look for joy and these three people's stories, all right? So we're gonna watch this together and then I'll close this out in prayer. Yeah, so we started coming to Cornerstone almost six years ago and uh, we've seen how uh, there's really been a lot of growth. Uh, We've really enjoyed the community here and we can see that the church has grown and really needs to uh, expand. And so uh, it was uh, pretty evident that there would be Uh, some kind of expansion of the building and uh, so it was no surprise when uh, we found out that uh, the church wanted to start Dream Boulder and uh, build larger facilities here. I started coming to Cornerstone in 2014 I think it was. I was hired to make a video for the student ministry and consequently I started hanging out with Uh, the students and the the youth leaders, and I fell in love with what God was doing there and uh, very much wanted to be a part of it. When I first heard about the vision for Dream Boulder, I got really excited because I just knew in my heart that this was something that God was doing. We've been going to Cornerstone for a while. We actually got even married here, which is pretty special. So we heard about Dream Boulder in the beginning of 2019. To be honest, we were in a pretty different season of life back then, like working for a nonprofit, making basically minimum wage, and felt tugged, and I was like, well, I want to help out, but what's my money going to do? I had just quit my day job at Starbucks and didn't have a consistent income. So in a lot of ways, it was a leap of faith to embark on that journey and to give in a way that was a little bit more sacrificial or uncomfortable at times. As we went on, so about a year into the project uh, was when COVID kind of hit and we uh, having to 
be at home with everybody, we started to feel like we would like a bit more space. We started looking around at different houses for ourselves and uh, trying to find uh, something that was suitable and it was kind of getting frustrating. In our frustration, I really felt like God was telling us that if we would take care of His house, He would take care of our house. That has been the case for us during this time. Our family then just started to focus on uh, giving faithfully and uh, we are now going to be blessed uh, with a new house to be built soon. So. Uh, now we're both like commission-based. That means our income is very inconsistent. But what's what's been cool is we come together and we talk and we pray about what, how much to give to different ministries, and that's just been a really cool way to do it. Tithing is not just something that you do like at the end of the month, and then and then you're, you're good. Like, it can be being generous with whatever you're having, with, with your space, with, with your time. It's a great visual, like sitting out here and um, imagining what the next couple of years will be like. It is a sowing into the church, into the community, into the next generation. We're not going to always see the result um, or see where the money goes or, uh, not know the the impact that that it will have over a lifetime. I believe very strongly in laying a foundation for the future and I feel tremendously blessed to have seen so much growth and so much of God's beauty and glory shine. I've gotten to see God encounter the students over the years in really miraculous ways and I've gotten to be a part of a number of amazing conversations and I just feel very lucky that I get to see on a regular basis what I'm working towards and what I'm pouring into. I get to see students encounter him again and again and I get to see them worship and I get to see them get to know who their Heavenly Father is. Legacy is something that as young people we never really thought about, but as we're growing up and we got a baby on the way, it's something that's on our hearts a lot more. We're excited for the future. We're excited to see how Cornerstone grows. The goal of the church is not a building, um, but I think the hearts of the leadership here, the people here, um, the community here, just to, to serve and not to be served. It's been a tremendous honor to be a part of what God's been doing with Dream Boulder. I'm, I'm so excited to see what he's going to continue to do in our, in our community. Do you hear the joy? It's what it like, it's like when you get to be a part. The book of Nehemiah ends with tremendous joy shared by the people. You can put that verse up there, Steve. <clears throat> I think it's Nehemiah chapter 12. I want to read it together. Oh, we got a little mix up, but I'll read it. On that day, they offered great sacrifices. God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. It's one of the many unorthodox paths to joy. It's not the only one. 
but it's one of them. And uh, God's sharing that with us. So let's thank him today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that, as James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who never changes and has no shifting. Father, let our hearts be filled with what you've given us. We're blessed. But I pray, Father, that you would also give us an appetite for real joy, the kind that comes from taking the Jesus path, saying yes to others more than ourselves, saying yes to your ways more than our own, saying yes to character, yes to growth, yes to healing, yes to generosity. I bless Cornerstone with more and more joy. And Father, we are so grateful for what has taken place. I bless this next year as we go through some growing pains and as people return, give us grace. But we're grateful for your favor and we're grateful that we get to join you with our generosity. May it continue out of us and into the rest of this community and this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together.